Well, the Bible's a big book, we know, and uh, mentioned before uh, that Acts is sort of like a bridge uh, in this very, very big book. Uh, we know the story of Scripture, or if we don't, I'll just give you a quick little uh, Cliff's notes uh, this morning. The story of the Bible is the story of God, of what God himself has done. It testifies of what God has done. It witnesses to what God has done. It records what God has done. The Bible is a story that God has made the world and all things in it, including us. He made it in the beginning, our first parents, Adam and Eve. He gave them a, a garden to live in, to, to dwell in, to have fellowship with him in, uh, to live with God, to love God, to be loved by God, and to, be, and, and to have fellowship with the Lord. Uh, but he sinned, so God created. Uh, man sinned, though. Human beings sinned against God. In response to that, this great God promised salvation to sinners. Salvation is to take sinners who've fallen away from what God intends for us and to bring us back to him, to restore us. And so we call, sometimes the Bible calls salvation, reconciliation, the taking of two warring parties and bringing them together. Uh, or it describes that as fellowship, that one, uh, one to another, face to face, we can live with God once again uh, and be loved by him. So the Bible is a story of creation and the story of rebellion or sin or the fall, the story of redemption through Jesus Christ ultimately, and the story finally of the, of the end of all things, the consummation. Uh, the, as Jesus spoke there in Matthew 13, when the Lord is going to send his angels and gather together his people, his enemies, his enemies will dwell in punishment for eternity, and those who love him and who trust in him are going to live with God once again, just as Adam and Eve uh, in paradise. So the Bible is that story, creation, rebellion, redemption, and consummation. It's, uh, and it sounds so glorious, doesn't it? It sounds so wonderful, doesn't it? Yes. Sounds great, doesn't it? And everybody believes. And everybody follows the Lord, don't they? I mean, if you heard the story that God made the world and we sinned, but yet God brings us back from sin into fellowship with him and he's going to live with us forever, I mean, wouldn't everybody want to believe that? Well, we might say, well, sure, we would think so, but it's not, well, we know it's not true. We know it's not true. Even God, within God's own people. Ezekiel chapter 5 described Jerusalem, which is the center of the people of God, the capital city, the place where David lived, the holiest of the holy people lived there, and they rebelled against God. And so the story is not just a story of creation and rebellion and redemption and consummation. All that is true, but also in there, there's sort of like another layer down underneath. There's this spiritual battle that's going on. There's this antagonism that goes on from the very point in which God promised to send a Savior to save sinners like you and me. At the same time, he also said that while that was going on, there was going to be this strife between not just God uh, and Satan, uh, not just Adam and that serpent, but there was going to be this enmity, strife, and war, spiritual war between those who follow the Lord and those who don't. And so as we come to the book of Acts, we, we've come through the story of creation and rebellion and redemption in Jesus Christ. And Acts is a bridge then to get us to the end. But we realize very quickly 
in just reading the book of Acts. If you've been reading along with us, if you've not, we've only now read parts of uh, the the whole of six chapters, Uh, you'll see that from chapter number two, especially three, four, and five, there's been this struggle. There's been this struggle. God has sent his son to redeem the world. God has sent Jesus, who died for sinners in their place, who rose again to life to bring us to new life, but not all believe that. Not all believe that. The world doesn't acknowledge that. So how do we live in the midst of all that? How do we exist as Christians in our culture? How do we see the apostles in the earliest church? How did they navigate the realities that they were citizens of a heavenly kingdom at the same time? They've got to live amongst unbelievers who aren't citizens of that heavenly kingdom. On the one hand, we want to see that there's that great division in people between those who trust the Lord and those who follow after him, those who love him and, and those who don't. There's this great antagonism that exists between human beings, and we all experience that in our own families. On the other hand, we still have to live. We've still got to navigate our jobs, our schools, our coaches, our teachers, our parents, our families, our extended families, our neighborhoods, right? We, we've, got to, we've got to live. We've still got to vote as citizens and so forth for the lesser of evils a lot of times. We've, we've got to navigate all these things. How do we do that? How do we do that? This morning, I want us to focus especially here. Uh, as I mentioned, we'll, 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 we'll come back next Sunday uh, to Stephen's uh, sermon, his, his address here before the high priest and the, and the Jewish ruling council. We'll come back to his sermon next Sunday in chapter number 7. Uh, but I want us to focus this morning on, 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 on Stephen as one example from all of these early ch- Christian ch- uh, uh, church members, the apostles, the disciples. How did they navigate living in a hostile world? How to be a Christian in a culture like theirs, like ours? How to engage in spiritual battle, how to be salt and light, how to be members of the the kingdom of heaven, how to be members of the kingdom of man. I want you to see five very, I hope, simple points this morning, and they'll be brief. Uh, I always say that, and it gets long, but uh, five five what I intend to be brief, practical points, but we'll see. Um, so, So how do we live as Christians in our culture? Well, the first thing that we see here with Stephen is his godly example. We live as Christians in a hostile world in our own culture by living godly, by living godly lives. And notice that even before, it's interesting, even before we get to the sermon in chapter 7, before Stephen, uh, before any of Stephen's words are recorded, what do we read about him? What do we learn about him? How is he described? What is he like? We first read in verse 4, as we saw uh, last Sunday, that he was a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Chapter 6, verse 4. He's one of those seven men that were set apart by the church and the apostles laid hands upon them to serve the church, to serve widows, to serve the needy, to take, a, to take charge of the tangible needs of the church and the body of Jesus Christ. And so he's described as a man who's full of grace, uh, full of faith, and full of the Holy Spirit. And then again, verse number 8 that we just read. 
that he's full of grace and he's full of power. And again, chapter 7, verse 54, he is full of the Holy Spirit. So what characterizes Stephen? That he's a man who is filled with the Holy Spirit. That means that he is uh, he's controlled by the Holy Spirit. Uh, he's led by the Holy Spirit. Uh, he is uh, one whom the Holy Spirit indwells and uh, is transforming from the inside out, cleaning up his life from the inside out as a sinner saved by grace. The Holy Spirit, he's full of faith. He trusts the Lord. He embraces that Jesus is Messiah. He is the promised Savior of the Old Testament. He's full of grace. Not just God's grace towards him to save him, an unworthy sinner, but his own grace towards, in response to that grace of God, his grace towards others, his graciousness. And he's full of power. We'll see that power here as he, as he testifies. So it's interesting that before we read his very words, his sermon, his defense, his learning and so forth, his unassailability, they, they, they can't answer him, we're told here. We will learn about his godliness. His godliness. How did Stephen live in his culture? How did he live amongst the world? How did he live amongst those who were ungodly? How did he live amongst those who rejected the Lord? He lived in a very godly way. He lived in a very godly way. Now, you might, you might say, well, you know, that's Stephen. I mean, he's a saint, right? There's, there's, there's a saint's day for Stephen. He's a saint. He's an extraordinary evangelist. You know, he, there's nothing like me and Stephen. There's nothing like Stephen and me. Or you might say, well, you know, Stephen's an example of a pastor, right? He's a minister of the word. And so we can, we can discount Stephen's uh, example or the descriptions of Stephen here. And we can kind of get ourselves off the hook by saying, well, you know, he's nothing like me. He's different. He's distinct. He's really holy. And so his example doesn't really help me. I mean, think of verses like the Apostle Paul, where he exhorts uh, young Pastor Timothy. And he tells Timothy that by his life and by his words, or his doctrine, by his life and his words, he would save both himself and his hearers. And again, we can say, well, that's true, but, you know, that, Timothy, again, he's a saint. Paul's a saint. These guys are holy. These are, you know, the, the cream of the crop of Christians. They might be able to save someone by their words and by their lifestyle, by their godliness, but surely not me. Surely not me. There is an old uh, Scottish preacher by the name of Robert Murray Machine, and he, and he once very famously said that, uh, as a pastor, that what his people needed most was his holiness, his own personal holiness. And a lot of times, you know, we're, those of us who, who uh, you know, we, we, we go to seminary, we go to graduate school, we prepare and we train to become pastors, and we hear that, that line there that what my people need most is my own personal holiness. And even as we as, and we, even we as pastors recoil from that. And we think there's just no way, there's just no way. That godliness, right? That the godliness that the apostles describe and the New Testament describes, the Bible describes, there's no way that that kind of holiness and, and great heroes of the faith, there's no way that that can really impact me and really apply to me. 
But do you know that Jesus says this about you too? Jesus describes all of us as Christians, not just pastors, not just apostles, not just evangelists, not just saints. He says this of every believer, that you are to live a life of godliness, that you're to live a life of holiness, and that it matters. How, what you think, what you say, what you do matters. It matters. How is it that people will come to glorify God in heaven, according to Jesus? Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount. How is it that that when he says that you are the light of the world, you can't hide your light under a lampstand, you've got to let your light shine. How is it that people will see the light and come to glorify our Father in heaven? What does Jesus say there in Matthew 5? Do you know that? Verse 14 and following. What's the light? You are the light of the world. Let your light shine. Don't hide your light. And when the world sees that light, they will come to glorify God. What's the light in Matthew 5? How does, how does Jesus define, let your light shine? Do you know? Matthew 5, I believe it's verse 16. Jesus says this. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see What? your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And who did Jesus tell that to in Matthew 5? Who was he speaking that to? But not just like we think the disciples made the apostles. Crowds, right? Crowds of people on a mountain. Crowds of people. All those who are following after him. Let your light shine, meaning let, your, let the world see your good works, your godliness, so that they might come then to glorify God in heaven. Your life is like a door. Your life is like a door to the unbeliever. Your life is like a beautiful entrance to your house. Even a nice door, maybe, you know, a nice, even, I mean, even, even the... The simplest of, of even screens these days are, are very nice. Or you can paint your door, have some decorations, have a little sign, have a little welcome mat and so forth. Your life is like that door into your home. People see the door. They come into the entrance. And that's how they get into the house and then have the conversation with you, have fellowship with you, enjoy your hospitality, be welcomed by you, be loved by you. Your, your godliness, your holiness, is like the door into the house. You can yell out, of course, out your window at somebody walking by the street. You can tell your neighbor not to get too close. Let me just tell you a couple things that you need to know. Or you can welcome them in. The, your life is like a door that welcomes people into your house so that they can then be received by you. In the same way, your godliness. That's the way that, that's the first thing people see. That's the entry point into which they then talk to you and ask you questions about the Christian faith. Peter says this. I want to read from, also from 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter says this this morning uh, after he calls us a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you might proclaim the excellencies of the one who's called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Beloved, I urge you. 1 Peter 2, verse 11. As sojourners and exiles to abstain 
from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. You belong to God. Resist sin, he says. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles. That's a way of describing unbelievers in the New Testament. Keep your conduct among the, among the Gentiles honorable. Why? When they speak evil against you as evildoers, when the world speaks of you as an evildoer, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Whether it's now or whether it's on that final day of judgment, the world will acknowledge the glory of God. And they'll do so on the basis of how we lived our life. So important for us today. So important for us today. How do people know that we belong to Jesus Christ? What did Jesus say in, in, in John 13? How does the world know that we belong to Jesus? It's by our love for one another. It's our love for each other. How do we love one another? We do it in, not just in words, but also in actions. The world knows that we belong to Christ because of our actions. It's so important for us today, then, to hear this, that we are to live a godly life amidst the world by being godly, by being godly. Not just going right to our social media and just going off about the latest this or that. You can't even tell the difference between a Christian these days and an, and a, and a, and an atheist online. I see it every day. You can't tell the difference, sadly. It's important for us to live a life of godliness and be different and distinct and holy in our thoughts, our words, and our deeds. And so here's Stephen, full of faith, full of the Spirit, full of grace, full of power. Before he speaks a word to the council, he is known as one who's godly. So let me exhort you and encourage you, and for all of us, myself included, to seek the holiness without which no one can see the Lord, to seek the Lord, to live a life of godliness, to be different from the world. How do I live as a Christian in our culture? By being a bold witness, secondly. By witnessing with boldness, notice. And so we read here in the story that the people in the synagogue, they are disputing with Stephen. And no doubt he's been speaking of the very same things that the apostles have been speaking of, that the Christ, the Messiah, is Jesus. Look back in chapter 5, verse 42. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they, that is especially Peter and John, who have been imprisoned now and beaten and threatened, but all the apostles and all the disciples... Every day in the temple from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ, that's the New Testament equivalent of Messiah, the Messiah is Jesus. And then the next story is Stephen, who's called out to serve the deacon uh, as a deacon. But now we read of him as one who's a godly man, who's also a, witness, uh, a man who's witnessing with great boldness. And he's in a synagogue, and they're disputing with him about this very fact. That Jesus of Nazareth, as they call him here multiple times, is, is Messiah. And they say not. He says he is. They say he isn't. And they cannot withstand, verse number 9 and verse 10 we read, they couldn't withstand his wisdom and the spirit with which he was 
speaking. This reminds us of what Jesus, or how Jesus preached and spoke. Remember how when Jesus went around and he spoke and he preached, what was the response to that? How did the crowds hear that? This is one who teaches as one with what? Authority. Not like the scribes and Pharisees, but with authority. And so here's Stephen with boldness, reasoning, arguing, disputing from Scripture that the Lord Jesus Christ is Messiah. And they can't resist. They can't withstand his wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. And he's doing that. Don't forget, uh, we read at the very end of our reading this morning, there at the very beginning of chapter 8, this great persecution that arose. And then we've just come out of a couple of chapters now where there was very intense persecution of the apostles. He's saying these things. He's being bold about Jesus despite opposition, knowing full well what's going to happen. Peter and John have just been arrested. They have just been beaten. They've just been hauled before the council. They've just been threatened. Do not teach in this man Jesus' name. And what do the apostles do? What did they do? They preached. They taught. They didn't stop. Why? It's better to obey God than man. It's better to obey, to obey God than man. If the world says you can't do something God says you must do, you must do it and obey God and say no to the world. That's what Stephen is doing here. That's what Stephen is doing here. Now, the world says you you can't ride bikes with round wheels. You've got to ride bikes with square wheels, which is an oxymoron, but you, you get the point. That has nothing to do with the Christian faith. Nothing to do with it at all. Okay, fine, we'll, we'll, we'll ride bikes with weird square wheels. Maybe we can, maybe we can make, make a shape like a dodecahedron or whatever, and it's sort of round, but it's got weird angles on it. But when the world says that you cannot preach in Jesus' name, you cannot worship in Jesus' name, you cannot sing in Jesus' name, you cannot believe the Bible in Jesus' name, you cannot do the things that God says to do, we've got to go obey God then, rather than man. That's, that's not disobedience to whatever authority that that's obedience to God and so we've got to learn to, to be bold witnesses even in our own ways and so here's Stephen and he's living in a different culture than us he's in synagogues he's a Jewish man uh, and, uh, and, and he's reasoning he's reasoning from Old Testament scriptures but, but we've got to witness boldly today some of us will stand in pulpits. We have many seminary students here, and we will stand in pulpits and we'll preach. That's one of the ways in which we can bear witness. Some of us will stand outside, uh, say, at the pier or, uh, or outside somewhere else, at a park. We'll proclaim Christ in, in various ways. Some of us will be asked at work, well, why is it that you believe what you believe? Uh, why don't you agree? Why won't you put up the flag? Love is love. Why won't you agree with us? Why won't you say the things that we say? Why won't you just go along and get along? Why do you believe what you believe? Some of us will be noticed because our lives are different than how others knew us before. Why? Why? What's the reason for the hope that's within you? Why do you trust in this Jesus? Why, how can you believe in this God? What is it about this stuff that you say you believe that's changed you? 
Others of us might live a more quiet and more peaceable life and we may be on our deathbed in the hospital and we might, the way that we face death is a witness to those who care for us and those around us. There's been times when I've visited in the hospital and right next, in the next little, the little curtain, people can still hear you, you know, when there's a curtain there, right? When there's a curtain there, is it a cone of silence? The person on the other side can hear what I'm saying, right? And they can hear the questions that I'm asking them, what people are saying to me. It's great. It's a great, uh, you're, they're, they're a captive audience, right? Uh, and I always wonder, you know, what, I wonder what someone who's on the other side of that curtain, no idea who they are, maybe they, maybe they trust Jesus just as much as I do, uh, but, but what if not? You know, what, how do I want to speak and how do I want to ask questions for the person who's in the hospital recovering, say, from a minor or major surgery, but the person next? How do we face struggles, death, our own mortality with confidence? The list goes on. We have to be bold witnesses in our time. I was reading this, this uh, must have been a week or two ago, uh, that the country of Nepal, a very small country, it's the birthplace of the Buddha, uh, Siddhartha Gautama, but uh, the Buddha. And uh, like 60 years ago, there was like 400 Christians in the country. It's not a huge country, but 400 Christians. In the last 20 years, oh, over 20,000 South Korean missionaries have gone to Nepal. Isn't that amazing? 20,000 have gone to Nepal. And there are now over, well over half a million, some people think even a million Christians uh, in Nepal. And a few years ago, uh, it must have been 10, 15 years ago, uh, they became a secular country. They, they had a civil war. They toppled their, their monarchy. Uh, and they're on paper, at least, they have freedom of religion, just like here. Uh, but, like other, but like many countries that have uh, thousands of years of a certain kind of ideology and, and uh, philosophy, that's a part and parcel of their culture, and so they, they pass anti-conversion laws. You can't convert. Uh, you can't preach in public. You can't baptize in public uh, because national unity and cohesion is threatened by the Christian faith. And so Christians, though, are, are trying to navigate all that, yet the church still grows. The church still grows. And right now there are currently 500 missionaries from South Korea in all aspects of life around Kathmandu and the little cities around it uh, teaching the gospel, baptizing, uh, churches being built, despite opposition. And there are, there are many Christians right now who are in jail and who are in prison awaiting trial on anti-conversion laws, but they've been bold witnesses, and the Lord has blessed it. We have to be bold in every little aspect of life, however that might be. How do I live as a Christian? in our culture. We've got to study the word. Notice that, that third little point there, by studying committedly. You can live a godly life and then somebody asks you why and you might not have anything to say. A person can ask you, as, as Peter says, they're going to ask you the reason for the hope that lies within you and give them an answer. But we have to have an answer. Where do we go for the answers to, our, to the questions of life? We go to what God has said to us in his word. We can't witness boldly unless we know the word. And again, we'll come back to Stephen's sermon. But 
the thing that should impress you, if you go and read it yourself, and uh, even now maybe glance at it, what should impress you is just how well he knew the Bible, the Old Testament especially. He was able to recount the history of God's dealings with his people in the Old Testament, and he brought it home to his Jewish hearers. He recounts this whole history, and he knows the story. In other words, we've got to know the word enough so that we can retell the story. We may not know chapters and verses, that's fine. But you know the story. God created the world. We've sinned against God. God has sent a Redeemer, and He's going to bring it all to consummation one day. That's sort of the the fourfold uh, act of history, of human history. Creation, rebellion, redemption, consummation. And He tells that story. He tells that whole history, and He brings it home to His hearers. This doesn't mean that you have to all be like John Kalin and read your Bernardinus de Moore texts, okay? If you don't know who that is, that's fine. Great Dutch Reformed theologian of the 17th century, uh, se- late 17th, 18th century. Uh, you don't have to read Herman Baffink. You don't need to read John Calvin. But you have to read the Word. You've got to know the Bible. You've got to read it in private. You've got to have a plan for reading that Bible. You've got to be diligent to read the Bible. Uh, you've got to hide the Bible in your heart. You've got to memorize you know, the, the big ideas, the stories, learn some verses. We've got, to, we've got to know that. We need to hear the Bible read to us and proclaimed to us. That's why we have worship. In the morning, we're focusing on one book of the Bible. There are 66 books, and this is just one of them, the book of Acts. And at nighttime, we, 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 we look at the big ideas of the Bible, the big picture of the Bible, and we've been using the Heidelberg Catechism uh, we, we are using it this, this calendar year to give us a sense of what the Bible teaches, the big ideas, the big plot lines, the big words, the vocabulary, the theology, and so forth. How do I live as a Christian in a hostile world, in our culture? By studying the Word. Stephen, as, as we see here, we'll see later on Apollos, we'll see others who studied the Word, who knew the Word. And they're able to answer questions with the Word. How do we live as a Christian? By suffering courageously. Again, Stephen had already seen the church suffer much. He knew that he, too, was going to suffer for what he was saying. But he still spoke with boldness. And I hope so far, it's only been a few chapters again, but I hope you've been impressed so far by the apostles, by the disciples, their courage, their courage as Christians in their own culture. Again, there's that verse we read last, uh, or maybe it was two weeks ago, in chapter 5. It's better for us to obey God than man, right? That's sort of the big idea we take away so far in their courage. It's better to obey God than man. John Calvin, I mentioned him a moment ago, but speaking of him, great uh, Reformation preacher, Geneva, he said once in one of his sermons, he said this, If princes demand that we turn from honor of God, if they force us into idolatry or superstition, then they have no more authority over us than frogs and lice. I thought it was a cool statement. If princes demand, right? So if any authority demands of us to not to honor God, and they force us into idolatry, Serving the state, for example, as God. They've got no more authority over us than frogs and lice. Right? They have no authority over us in those little realms, those little areas. No. 
It's better to obey God than man. So there's this great sense of, of, of suffering for righteousness so far in the book of Acts because it's a joy for us to suffer for Jesus Christ. The scriptures say to us that it is a blessing to suffer as a follower of Jesus Christ. The Bible says that it's a means, it's a way in which God sanctifies us, that he actually makes us more godly. He makes us more holy through suffering. Like the pressure that the earth puts upon carbon to turn it into diamonds. There has to be some kind of pressure to to bring those things out. We've got to hear this as Americans. We've got to hear this. That suffering for Jesus Christ is a, is a given in the Bible. We, we don't see that. We don't feel that much. But as one writer said, love of ease and pleasure is the bane of Christianity. And that was written by a 17th century guy. The love of ease and pleasure is the bane of Christianity. Meaning it's the, not the blessing, but it's the curse of Christianity. The love of ease and pleasure. Now, that doesn't mean that we need to go out of our way to suffer. It's a way to sort of distinguish us on a higher level of Christians than others because I've gone after suffering. No. But if suffering does come, if persecution does come, if pressure does come, if assaults do come, face with courage. Face it with courage. One of the great martyrs of the early Christian church uh, was a woman named Perpetua. She died around the year 200. And as she was led into the arena to face uh, wild animals to satisfy the crowds in Carthage, she, she sang to her death with confidence by singing psalms. She was heard singing psalms with confidence and joy. The English Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas, Can- uh, Thomas Cranmer, who had, under pressure at one point, re- recounted, uh, uh, renounced his faith, the, Christ- uh, the Protestant faith, to save his life, later on came to his senses and he stood firm and he was burned at the stake. And as he went up to the stake to be burned, the first thing that he put into the fire was his hand. Do you know why? That very hand is the hand that held a pen that wrote his name on a recantation piece of paper that said he was no longer a Protestant, but he would go back to the Catholic faith. And as he was led to the fire, as he said, no, I was wrong, I repent of that, he was led to the fire, he put his hand in the fire. He was going to die anyway. He did it as a way of showing that he was repentant, that he would suffer for Jesus Christ with confidence. One Indian pastor said this in a recent article that I read, There's great persecution in northern India uh, these days by not just Hindus, but also Muslims. And uh, a local pastor of a small church said this, Even if I'm beaten, it's all joy. Those of us who are beaten are the privileged ones. So we live for Christ. And when we die, we die for Christ. We have completely given our lives into the hands of Jesus. Can we say that? I mean, I don't know if even I would say that under pressure. Under great persecution. The the confidence, the confidence to suffer for Christ.
when Perpetua went to that arena to die at the hands of wild animals, she went with one of her friends, Felicitas, and she was pregnant. And she said this, she was recorded as saying this, Now it is I that suffer what I suffer, but then there will be another in me who will suffer for me, because I am also about to suffer for him. Meaning that we, when we suffer, we suffer with Christ. He's already suffered for us, and now he suffers along with us as Christians. How do we live as a Christian in a hostile world, in that spiritual battle that exists between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent? I do so courageously, courageously as I'm able. And finally, we do so by forgiving graciously. Notice how Stephen ends. I read the beginning, I read the end. We'll come back to the middle next Sunday, Lord willing. But I read, uh, read there at the end. Uh, how does Stephen end as he's given that sermon? He's then taken out of the city. He's stoned. They throw rocks at him to put him to death. That's what that means, to stone him. And he sees Jesus, the right hand of God, and he, he proclaims that. And he cries out. But yet they close their ears. And they rush together at him to put him to death. And as they're doing that, he cries out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold the sin against him. When he had said this, he died. His opponents lied about him and about what he said. They deceived the authorities concerning him. They conspired against him. They threw rocks at him. They hated him. He suffered injustice. He was stoned to the point of death where he's kneeling in his last gasp. What does he gasp out? Almost what Jesus said. On the cross, there was Jesus looking out upon the crowds. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. With his last dying breath, he forgives. He prays for their forgiveness. That's what Jesus did on the cross. This is how Stephen lived and died in the face of his enemies. Our response as Christians today, again, so often is to be militant or uh, to take it into our own hands, to think politically, to think culturally, you know, how are we going to get back at these people and so forth. No, forgive graciously. Forgive graciously. Your words of forgiveness and grace are going to be more effective than any political strategy that you can possibly devise or some leader that you might follow. Forgive graciously. Why? Because Jesus Christ has forgiven you. We forgive because he has first forgiven us. We love him because he's first loved us. We are willing to suffer because Jesus Christ has suffered for us. He suffered for the world. So we come to hear this this word this morning from from the, the New Testament, the, the, the Holy Spirit wants to, us, wants to encourage us to live. To live in a culture that in many ways is dying and in many ways is anti-Christ. But to live for the glory of God. To live for the glory of God. To do that as Stephen. By being godly. By being bold in our witness. By committing ourselves to study the word. By suffering with courage. By forgiving with the very grace that God has graced you with. Let's pray.
Father in heaven, we pray that you would forgive us for our, wor- our worldliness, our love of ease and pleasure. Help us, Lord, not to be content uh, with these things, but, Lord, to use the gifts that you've given us, the freedom that you've given us, uh, to further the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, so, Lord, use us in our daily lives, our example, our godliness, 